everybody's got a story What's yours? Hello friends, welcome to episode 27 of Cool Story with David J. McNeil. Thank you so much for listening, I really appreciate your support. This episode features a chat with Mr. Canadian Comedy himself, entrepreneur, stand-up comedian, actor, writer, teacher, member of the Order of Canada, and founder and CEO of the Yuck Yuck Stand-Up Comedy Club chain, Mr. Mark Breslin. I spoke with Mark about the early days of stand-up comedy in Canada, the state of comedy today in the age of COVID-19, and the advanced scrutiny of stand-up due to woke culture. We also spoke about the many other projects that have kept Mark very busy over the years. So let's jump right into it. This is my conversation with Mr. Mark Breslin. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? That's a complicated question to ask when one is in lockdown and has been for a long, long time. You know, I used to live in a building, a uh, high rise. I used to live on the top floor and it was mostly older Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And I would get on the elevator and the last thing you would ever want to do is ask one of those older Jewish women, how are you? Because you would hear it for 28 floors. Right. So I warn you, if you're going to ask me how I am, this could take up the entire time of this, of this podcast. Suffice it to say, I'm surviving, but just barely. I'm bored. I'm unemployed. I'm, I'm, I'm a king without a kingdom. Mm-hmm. And if you've read King Lear, you know that's not a pretty picture. Yeah. And from what I gather and what I know of you, you are a person who likes to keep busy. You're a creative person and, and you don't strike me as a person that likes to be idle for too long. No. Um, you know, if I were one of those people who like to play golf, um, then I would think, oh, okay, well, this is a great opportunity to play golf. I'm not a very outdoorsy person to begin with. Um, so the number of hobbies I have is, you know, all involves sitting. I like to sit and watch a movie. I like to sit and uh, have a meeting. I like to sit and have uh, friends talk to me uh, over coffee. And, you know, this is very limiting. Yeah. Very, very limiting. It's stuff I've been reaching out to a lot of uh, my friends back home in Toronto and and uh, the, the way that this has manifested itself, especially a lot of my friends live downtown in condos and um, they don't have uh, a lot of outdoor space and stuff. And so they're, they're, they're really feeling locked in and, and, uh, and getting cabin fever and, and buggy and, and mental, uh, mental health is, is, is uh, not, not great right now for a lot of friends. So I want to thank you, first of all, for taking the time to chat with me today. And uh, I, I know David, that, uh, David, this is uh, the high point of my life. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Thank me? Is, no, I should be thanking you. It is good to reach out, though, isn't it? It it's is good to chat with people right now. <laughs> it is. I've been trying to do as many Zoom calls with friends and stuff and make sure everybody's all right. And and uh, you're right. You're right. It's, <laughs> but is, you know uh, what? Mm-hmm. It's it's friendships have really suffered, I think, during this pandemic, because nobody wants to call anybody and say, how are you doing or what's new? What's new are the two most obscene words now in the English language. What's new? What's new? Nothing's new. And then yep. you hang up on the person. So <laughs> I'm I, I've let a lot of friendships slip. And I know when everything comes back to normal, I'll be seeing those people again. But I just have no desire to call anybody and, and yak at them on the phone when I know what the answer is going to be. It's all make work, you know, that yeah. that conversation. Yeah. And in like in, in normal times, how often do you at any one of your clubs, your, the, the Toronto club, just and able to just chat with people and, 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 and fully engage? Or I guess you're probably out on the town all the time, right? 
Well, less so now that I'm yes, almost 70 years old and I have a 10 year old child mm-hmm. that um, that's kind of inter- that's a kind of interesting news in itself that uh, I could have a child at 60. But um, and that's a whole set of <laughs> interesting issues. But um, I'm always at the club in the Toronto club once a week, usually on a Friday night. That's my night to go down and press the flesh and talk to people. And I book comics on that show that I want to have a conversation with anyway. Um, so that's usually my Friday night. I'm there for sure. And then I'm at amateur night on a Tuesday night um, once a month. And I try to make sure I go to all my clubs. And there's usually 12 or 14 of them seasonally adjusted rate um, once a year. So I'll go to Ottawa once a year. I'll go to Calgary and Edmonton once a year. I'll go to Vancouver once a year. I'll go to Halifax once a year. And I'll you know, commute with the local pool. I'll commune mm-hmm. with the local pool of talent. And um, so I do all that sort of stuff. And then I also have a tremendous number of Starbucks meetings with comics and clients, you know, all through the day. Yeah. And then you've, you've, you've got such a busy schedule. You will, we'll, we can get into some of this stuff later, but you know, you do a lot of writing, uh, you teach at Humber, you've got your finger in a lot of different pies. That just shows you how I'm not really good at anything. Um, so I have to make sure that I have a lot of volume going along to make up for the lack of quality that is in my life. Yes. I'm sure. Okay. Okay. That was, you know, that was funny, but, um, the truth is in Canada, you kind of have to do a lot of different things to, you know, to make that level of, of, of income and to make that level of, of excitement happen. In the United States, all you have to do is do one thing exceptionally well, and you will work all the time. If you're a comedian, you're a comedian. If you're a producer, you're a producer. But here in Canada, you kind of have to do it all somehow. You know, I get bored easily. And if I were just a club owner, just a guy who went down and counted, uh, you know, liquor inventory, I'd be pretty bored after 45 years. But because I have a series of other, you know, sub careers as a writer, as a performer, as an educator, uh, as a producer, it's, it's, it keeps it interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about the comedy. You, this all started in 1976. Is that when you moved into the basement on church street or is that when you were over at Harbor front and you, you first jumped into this? No, Harbor front started in 1974. Yep. Um, I had a degree in English literature and no idea what I wanted to do with it. All my friends were becoming lawyers and professors, and I just didn't want that at all. I did not want any kind of a desk job or a cubicle job. I didn't know what I wanted. You know, people always say, follow your dream. Um, but I didn't have a dream. So what I was doing was running from away from my nightmare. Mm-hmm. And my nightmare was a conventional life. Yep. I didn't want that. But I didn't know about I wanted to do comedy. In fact, You know, people come to me all the time now and they say, I knew I wanted to be a stand-up comic when I was nine years old. I knew I wanted to be a comic. I wanted to be in comedy when I was, you know, 15 years old. I I never even considered that. I never even considered a degree uh, doing anything in show business of any kind until I was actually in show business. And I went, hey, I like this. So um, I got a job at Harborfront the first year they opened. It was a startup, and it was the first of many startups that I would be involved in over my life. I find I really like startups. They're really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, running something that 
somebody has already created or that even you've created is all detail. And that's not really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the big picture. And you get to do that when you're, you're part of a startup. So the idea of this place was um, the federal government bought um, an enormous plot of land down on the Toronto waterfront. They wanted to develop it, but it would cost billions of dollars. They had to somehow convince the public that this was a good idea. So what they did was they had bread and circuses. They hired a bunch of people to put on shows and book shows get people down to the site, which was really industrial at the time, and they would all kind of fall in love with it. I had a unique situation of the 24 people who were hired to do this because I was really into entertainment. I went to everything when I was in university. I went to every concert. I went to every play. I went to everything there was, except comedy. I had no interest in comedy, and there wasn't even that much comedy going on. Second City was was around it. Yeah, I went to it. Yeah, I liked it, but I wasn't a big Second City head like a lot of people are, because it was just acting to me. It didn't say anything. I, I liked people who said something. So I always liked, you know, poetry and I liked singer songwriters. I was really big into the folk music scene at that time because mm-hmm. it was a, a personal vision, a personal attitude. And I loved that. And I had a lot of it myself, but I didn't realize any of this, of course, till except in retrospect. And when I was there, um, I was quite good at my job. So they started giving me more responsibilities and they knew that I went out all the time. They were all older guys and older women that were running this thing. I was 21 years old, 22 years old. And they said, okay, who should we book? And I was like, well, you should book this guy. You should book that theater troupe. You should book. And they started to do that. And those things were a success. So they, they put me up in the office. And when the summer was over, it was only supposed to be a summer job. They said, why don't you stay? Let's plan for next summer. And I had an amazing job for two years. I had mm-hmm. one of the best jobs in the entire country. I had a big budget and I could book anybody I wanted. And one of the things I started was a comedy night, not knowing that it would change my life completely. Right. And there were comedy was going through a major shift if you were paying any attention to it. It was moving away from, you know, kind of old jokes and sort of vaudeville inspired stuff that was still happening in Canada to something much more personal, much more uh, uh, uncensored. And this sort of just fit with the kind of person I was and it fit with the interests that I had. I was really involved in radical politics at the time and radical psychological movements and, um, uh, you know, going to Claremont Experiment on the weekends and uh, doing all this kind of, um, you know, pass the person around, trust games, uh, getting into the hot tub naked with people (laughs) and not having sex with them. You know, it was it was a very interesting time. Yeah, We're talking you 1974, 1975. And I just loved it all. But the thing I loved the most out of all the stuff that I booked, I found I loved the comedy the most. Now, I had an interest in comedy like anybody else. When I was, you know, a little younger, we would sit in uh, my friend's basements and we would listen to, you know, comedy records. I know you had Tommy Chong on. Well, we would listen to Cheech and Chong. Uh, we would listen to Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce and Bill Cosby. And we would listen to all of that. And I, I used to watch a lot of sitcoms when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, not realizing that this would all kind of percolate and be able to be spat out later. Also, my cousin Victor, my great cousin Victor, bought me a subscription of Mad Magazine, and it completely blew me away. And so all of these things were kind of percolating under the surface, but I didn't realize them. And then when I got up to host these shows, because I was the cheapest guy I knew that I could hire, I started to have a bit of a taste for making people laugh. 
And then it just went from there. Well, I got fired from Harbor Front along with everybody else two years later. All my friends who were comics said, we have no place to play. And I, being the kind of designated driver type, everybody else would be, you know, drunk and stoned, but I would be kind of straight and trying to do some business. I found a place one night a week in the basement of a community center, and I called it Yuck Yucks for a variety of reasons. And it was a huge success. It was only one night a week. It was only 90 seats. But about four months into this, six months into this, um, this guy called me from the Globe and Mail, Jack Capizza. I hear you're doing something interesting at this community center in comedy. I said, yeah. I said, every Wednesday night. He said, can I come down, maybe write something about it? I said, sure. So the guy comes down. There's maybe 30 people in the audience. And he's writing all night. And he said, I think I can get something in on Saturday, on the Saturday paper. I said, oh, that's great. Thank you. Saturday, I wake up, I had an answering machine, one of the first answering machines in the, in, the, in the city, actually. And there were 48 messages on it, where normally there'd be two or three. And every one of them said, pick up the globe, pick up the globe and mail, pick it up, pick it up. It's unbelievable. So I ran out, I went out and I bought the globe and mail and there was a two page spread on the club. <laughs> the next Wednesday, I went down to the, club, to the community center about an hour early, as I usually did. And there were 900 people lined up around the block to get in. And it never stopped from there. And then I started raising money to open up an actual club. And everybody thought, the entire media thought, this is going to be a huge failure. Who wants to see comedy? How many people really want to see stand-up comedy? How many people want to see uncensored stand-up comedy? You know, when we first started, um, not on on Church Street, but on the regular place on Bay Street, six nights a week, we lost about a third of the audience through the show. They right. despised it. It was too much for because them. Because I think they thought they were going to watch, you know, Red Skelton. Right. And instead they got me opening up a real dirty mouth and rubbing rubbing their faces in their anti-Semitism, which probably didn't even exist. But, I, you know, for, for the purposes of this show, yeah, they did exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I knew we were onto something because the people who stayed came back. The people who stayed brought their friends and it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And you were you were the first to introduce something that had been happening in the in the United States for a while, type of uh, stand up comedy. We we hadn't seen it here before. Uh, you know, who was doing comedy in Canada on television or whatever? Was that sort of what was available here? I'll, I'll tell you what was here. There was Dave Broadfoot. Yeah. And Dave Broadfoot is a terrific pioneer in the business. Sure. But he was articulating a very small town point of view that I couldn't relate to it. My friends mm-hmm. couldn't relate to it. Um, we were all people who lived in condos or apartments and ate foreign food and um, watched American TV and uh, were really interested in sort of edgy politics and drugs and rock and roll. None of this was part of Dave Broadfoot's world. Yeah. There was nobody doing what we were doing. Nobody. Yeah. We were the first. But Wayne in the Schuster States, probably too. Yeah, Wayne and Schuster actually is even from before that, right? Yeah. Wayne and Schuster, you know, 50s and 60s. My parents used to watch Wayne and Schuster all the mm-hmm. time. And Wayne and Schuster were really good at what they did, but it wasn't speaking to me. It wasn't speaking to my generation. So it was very much a generational issue of people who were brought up on sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the 60s. And by the time the 70s rolled around, they were old enough to actually try to hijack the the means of the the hijack the institutions of culture, um, which is what we were doing. When I think of some of the big figures who 
were able to harness Canadian talent and 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 present it to the world. I think of three people. I, I think of uh, I think of you, Mark Breslin. I think of uh, wow. Andrew Alexander, and I yeah. and I think of uh, Lauren Michaels. Yeah, and um, interestingly enough, Lauren Michaels and I both went to the same high school. But did you? And so did David Cronenberg. There must be something in the water in that high school. Mm-hmm. So um, what high school uh, is that? Uh, Forest Hill Collegiate, um, oh. which was uh, kind of well-to-do, 99% Jewish uh, high school. Yeah. yeah. Uh, people, the arts were really encouraged in that high school. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a, a, in, in, you know, in Malcolm Gladwell parlance, an outlier? Well, I was always an outlier, certainly psychologically. I mean, I've been in therapy so much and, and not always by court order. Um, so, um, yeah, I was always an outlier. And if you want to go back to my personal history, um, first of all, I, I was a... I was a child born to older parents, much older parents. My father mm-hmm. was 53. My mother was 44 when I was born. I had two sisters that were already out of the house uh, by the time I was born because they were 20 years and 24 years older than me. So right away, there's a whole generational, um, like, like a cleavage, right? There's a fault line in, in my family. Um, yeah. So that makes it kind of weird. I was living in a house. I was born in 1952, but my parents acted as if they were living in the depression in a dark, gloomy house with tiny rooms. And, you know, meanwhile, um, there was pop art out there. And that's this great discontinuity um, between that and the life I was living with my parents uh, was something that I think was a big motivator to, to make me feel very different. I was also really short and I mean, really short. I had a growth spurt. So now I'm five, three, but if you could only imagine when I was, you know, 13 years old, I was like four foot eight and everybody else was tall. So I'm Mm -hmm. short in a tall world. I'm young in an old person's world. And there were a lot of other things like that too. So I always felt like that kind of outlier. When you are that child, is is it because there's such a disparity in age and in connection maybe with your folks that you have to find your own space and maybe I've watched so many uh, inside the actor studio o- over the years. Uh, you know that was uh, I really used to love watching those shows and uh, the the thing that used to come up a lot was how some of the most creative people were alone a lot or perhaps the parents, you'd be an army brat or whatever and travel all over the place. And uh, the, you know, the kid was alone a lot, so you'd have to find your own creative way to entertain yourself. Is that something that was part of your, your upbringing? Yeah, I mean, I, can, I, I was brought up as an only child, even though I wasn't an only child technically. And you know, I was interested in a lot of stuff that my parents just couldn't be interested in because of the, the enormous age difference. I remember, Here's an example of the kind of stuff that I would do. Um, you remember that um, there would be these pop. I loved the radio. I loved I loved pop music a mm-hmm. lot. My sister worked um, at the Eaton's record department uh, when I was four, five, six years old, and she used to bring home rock and roll records um, that I would listen to, and I became entranced with that world of pop music. So um, I used to go every week on a th- on Thursday after school. I would walk the six blocks over to the Kresge's, and I would pick up the Chum chart. Chum being the uh, dominant uh, rock station uh, in Toronto. And it would have 50 songs listed. But you know, David, those weren't in the order I thought that they should be in. So every Thursday night, I would recopy the entire 50 songs on a separate sheet of paper according to where I thought they should go. Mm-hmm. And my parents would bring me um, dinner in my room, which I 
they usually do that. This was always special on Thursday night. But I think that's kind of indicative of a lot of stuff um, of, you know, wanting to make my own reality out of it. Um, but there's a certain loneliness. I mean, sitting in your room and transcribing every song title and who, who wrote it and everything. There's, there's something vaguely lonely about it. When we moved out of my parents' house when I was about, I don't know, 15, 16 years old, we moved to another house and I was throwing stuff away. I came upon the box of these things and there were hundreds of them. Yeah. Just hundreds of them. And I was, I, I should have kept them, but I didn't. But anyway. Yeah. That's, that's fun stuff to do. I, I remember being a kid and tape recording the, you know, in Ottawa, we CFRA back in when, when, you know, AM was a thing, uh, listening to the top 40, but just recording that stuff and making mixtapes and stuff. And, and, uh, and then, and then recording interviews with my brother in our closet, pretend that I was an interviewer and he was sting and, and, uh, mm-hmm. it was just so fun to do that kind of stuff and then listen to it back after. And <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's play. Yeah. It's it play. And, and what and we do today is play. And I wasn't a sporty kid ever, still not, don't understand it, not really. Hmm. Um, you know, I took my kid to a, a baseball game. Neither of us could really last. Um, and I, hockey, I, I, you know, that's a national religion, never mind a sport. And I don't get it. You know, people go down the ice, then they go back up the ice, they go down the ice, they go back up the ice. To me, the only reason to chase a piece of rubber around is if it slips off. You know, I just <laughs> don't think that, I, I don't get it. I never will get it. <laughs> yeah, well. Well, a lot of folks don't, right? And uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of our artist friends to talk to is just, uh, yeah, they, they weren't part of that. So they had to find their own tribe. Yeah. yeah. I had to make my own tribe, um, yeah, I you found. Did. Um, and that was true all through high school. That was tr- true uh, through university, which was not a good time for me. I was very lost. Um, and this all contributes to wanting to do comedy because I was so depressed when I was in university. I had a good time in high school. High school was good for me. Oh, yeah. But but university was not. And I was very depressed, very uh, suicidal. Yeah, suicidal. Um, not in good shape. And then this thing happened where I discovered these interesting people in show business. And my life suddenly got so much better. So yeah. I wanted to make sure it worked. I wanted to do anything to make sure it worked because my fear was going back to how I felt in university. Yeah. Where well, I was who were real... those people? Who were those first people that really turned your crank that made you want to explore this further? Well, there was a duo in Toronto called La Troupe Grotesque, and mm-hmm. nobody knows them. Um, they were so ahead of their time in terms of uh, media parody, and uh, it was just way out, way out stuff. One guy, Paul K. Willis. Very tall and uh, kind of sepulchral. Um, And the other guy, short and gay. Um, Just the fact that there was a straight and gay combination in 1976, 77, just that alone was was very unusual. Um, And I became their their stage manager for their shows at Harborfront. That was what propelled me forward. But I always was, I always followed Paul K. Willis's lead as he was a real mentor for me in comedy. And I'm Sorry that more people don't know him. He was very successful on CBC radio. Uh, Michael, the other guy, Michael Bonker, was murdered um, in his apartment mm-hmm. by some rough trade. Um, it all ended kind of tragically. Paul got pancreatic cancer and was, and was dead yeah. in a month, which was so sad for me. But anyway, very, 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 a person who was very, those guys were really instrumental in making me want to do comedy and be in the comedy world. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then there was another guy named Paul Mandel. No relation to Howie. Yeah. Paul Mandel looked like Bob Dylan and would go on stage and it was performance art. Before there was performance art, he would read his divorce papers and start to cry and then throw sticky buns at the audience. <laughs> I and my friend Joel Axler, who started the club with me, we were the only ones who found him funny. Yeah. But it didn't matter. Two people find you funny. You must be funny to somebody. Yeah. So um, he was very influential in in where I wanted to go with with comedy. And then there were more, you know, Steve Schuster um, was tremendous. He was a this sort of zoned out guitar act. And he he was around for quite a while. He was Lauren Michaels brother in law. So uh, there were if you're asking me who who influenced me that were professional comedians at the time. Oh, well, you know, um, I always liked George Carlin. I always liked Lenny Bruce. I always liked Mort Saul. Yeah. They were, they were important to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were important to me. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I remember being a kid, uh, and, uh, I remember two things about comedy. One was, one was that I, I was born in 1970. So when I was about 14, I got, somebody gave me a tape. It's pre Eddie Murphy raw. It was Eddie Murphy comedian. And right. I remember listening to that and wow, I was like, just, whoa. Uh, it opened up a whole new world to me and I memorized all of the routine and, and I, I just fell in love with that. And uh, that was really exciting. Um, and then I got so excited about stand-up comedy because of Eddie Murphy at that point that um, my parents would go to bed. I'd sneak downstairs and, and go watch Johnny Carson so I could watch the comedians. And that was the beginning of um, my sleep problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, you know, I hear that story a lot. I never shared that. I never cared. I never stayed up to watch the comedian on Johnny Carson. I remember watching comedians on Ed Sullivan with my parents. And yeah, I liked them, but it wasn't anything. It never occurred to me that this is so special until I started doing it. Yeah. Until I started being in the center of it. And then I realized just how special it was. And then you did it yourself. And I did it myself. Yeah. And how did that feel? Um, liberating, powerful, um, full of revenge. Um, you know, when you're a stand-up comic, at the very least, they're listening to you. Yeah. If nothing else, you've got the floor. Because you've got a microphone. The audience doesn't. Not a fair fight, is it? You know, even with a heckler, you've got the microphone. They have to shout. So um, it was fantastic for anybody like myself who um who whose complaint for so long was you're just not listening to me you you gotta listen to me why aren't you listening to me well everybody was listening to me and what i was saying was so transgressive that they had no choice but to either listen or walk out and believe me i, I had so many walkouts people who walked out of yuck yucks mostly walked out because of me i was very proud of that and i it was a badge of honor so what would happen is you know as they walked out i wouldn't let them just walk out i would whirl on them make them the center of attention and scream at them for their stupidity their you know their lack of culture um i would scream at them to go back to oakville and you know to their white picket fence blah 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 and, and get out get out get out and then i would take out my wallet and I would take a wad of cash out of my wallet and I would say, but just remember when you go, no refunds, the Jew has your money. <laughs> the Jew has your money. And then I would have the audience chant with me. The Jew has your money. The Jew has your money. The Jew has your money. Well, you might think that it, that story ends there, but it doesn't. <laughs> what would happen is inevitably they couldn't figure out that I was actually the owner of the club. You yeah. know how, how, so they would, write a letter to the owner of the club uh, describing what happened and demand that I be fired. 
right? you had a stamp. Correct. I had a stamp that I had made up, a nice big stamp that said, eat shit and die. The Yuck X management, by the way, um, eat shit and die was in block letters and um, uh, the Yuck X management was in wedding font because yeah. <laughs> you know, they wanted it to be elegant. Yeah. So I would stamp the, I would stamp the, uh, the, the letter. And of course, people in those days, they, they sent letters, not emails, and they would put these return address on. So I would put it into the envelope and I'd send it back to them. Oh, that's I a beautiful heard thing. I love that story. <laughs> okay, so what's so people think, would think, oh, you're crazy. That's not the way you treat a customer, except they weren't customers. Mm -hmm. They weren't people who were ever going to come back. They were yeah. people who were going to tell all their friends never to come back. So what did I have to lose? Yeah. Somehow I knew that many years later, I'd be able to tell a good story, and that was worth more than anything. Yeah, and, you know, notoriety. <laughs> it wasn't for everybody. Now stand-up comedy is kind of for everybody, almost. Um, but it's, it was really a, a, a vanguardist thing that was going on. It was like electronica in 1981. And it's just, you had to be really savvy to go mm -hmm. to that club. Yeah. Really savvy. And um, you also had to have a thick skin, which uh, I think you have to still have a thick skin sometimes when you go to one of my for, clubs. For sure you did. And my, my mom was talking to me. She sent me a note the other day and I said, I'm going to be, she's interested in, in what I'm doing with the podcast. And I said, here's, here's what I'm doing this week. And I'm chatting with Mark Breslin and she knew who, who, well, she knew Yuck Yucks. And she recalled going to your club in Ottawa with three of her lady friends. I don't know when it was, probably 25 years ago. And and she said they got there and the comedian was using the F word and stuff. And it's not what they thought it was going to be. It just wasn't. And fair enough. You you have to know what you're in for when you when you go to a comedy club. It's not they're for used to watching this stuff on. No, but you know why they're used to they're used to watching this stuff on television. Mm -hmm. And television takes all the high and the low end out. So, you know, comedy on television on network television is like music. And that's what people were brought up on. And they thought they would go to the club and that's what they would see. Yeah. Well, anybody who ever went to see Bob Saget, we used to put Bob Saget. Yeah. Bob Saget has the dirtiest act you've ever seen. People would show up expecting to see the guy from Full House. And then he would open his mouth and you could see the shock on people's faces. And lots of people would leave. Um, it's Television has become such a reality for people that they can't imagine that there's something else out there. Yeah. So um, now it's changed, of course, because of cable and streaming um, and the Internet. People kind of know what they're getting. I don't think very many people come to Yuck anymore and walk out because they're shocked at what they see. No. They kind of know. Yeah. Yeah, what you were describing about, about Bob Saget, it was kind of like the situation in the, in the 1970s where people had watched Sanford and Son and then would go see Red Fox at a club. Oh, yeah, I'm And get sure. knocked on their ass by, by his performance. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, so, you know, um, this, is, this is a problem still. You know, a lot of people, they watch Just for Laughs on CBC and they think that that's what the comedy is. And to some degree it is, but to a large degree it's not. And... Yeah. You know, you, you segment your audience over time. Um, there are definitely people who love yuck yucks, yeah. love comedy clubs, love comedy club comedy. But then there's other people who, you know, want to go to an improv show where one of the rules in improv is nothing below the waist. You never refer to anything below the waist. That's kind of a kind of a kind of a general rule, an unspoken rule. Mm -hmm. And that that's great for them. It's it's. It's so good that there's so many different options for people to, you know, enjoy what they want to what, want to enjoy now. That wasn't true in the 50s and the 60s and even getting into the 70s. Yeah. Well, 
We're at a good spot in this conversation to talk about shifts in comedy, woke culture, political correctness. I remember being in a university in early 90s. I was a first year student in, in 89, 90. By the time 91 came around, I thought, boy, things are getting really politically correct back then. And I thought, and, and <laughs> I had no idea how much more politically correct they would be uh, and how woke uh, the culture would uh, change things. And, and, and while I appreciate that culture as well, because... I think there's a lot of things that have happened that are good to be a part of, you know, we we're better people than we used to be, but we've also suffered a lot by that because we're censoring so much. How can you push the envelope and, and still satisfy audiences these days? Okay. So this is not the first time this has happened. When I first got involved in comedy and I first opened up my clubs, I had a tremendous amount of um, hostility uh, and political correctness from the religious right. Um, that was those were the, that was the enemy then, and then that, they kind of went away. And then around the early '90s, Sam Kinison era. Uh, Andrew Dice Clay era, both of whom were friends of mine and I would bring into Toronto, um, it became the feminist left that was the problem. Now um, it's uh, identity politics, which is leading the woke movement and is very bad for comedy, might be very good for people, might be very good for politics, might be very good for a lot of things, but it doesn't mean it's good for comedy. Mm -hmm. um, and my answer to that is I do, I program whatever I want to program. I don't care what the audience thinks because I'm lucky enough to have over 40 years to give my company a DNA that says, this is a place where you can hear anything. The audience knows that Yuck Yucks is not the place to go to hear sensitive, uh, sensitive comedy. It's a place to go to hear any kind of comedy that everyone will be insulted equally. Everybody has the uh, equal rights to the stage to say whatever they want. As long as they get laughs, we let it go through. Um, colleges, very different story. You know, we we always booked a lot of Yuck Yuck shows into colleges and we find we have fewer and fewer colleges that will, will take our shows. I see it as therapy. And I've always seen Yuck Yucks as therapy. I've always seen uh, what I do as therapy. And it's, if you, if you know anything about massage, massage hurts before it feels good. Right. Yep. They press on your shoulder. Ow, 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 ow. Oh, ah. And that's how it should be. That's how comedy has to be. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I love about comedy is I, I we were talking about this the other day that uh, I think comics, comics and artists in general and are, are a little bit like uh, astronauts. They go out there to the outer realms and, 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 and push and, and, and discover and look for, look for, you know, what's out there and report back to us. And, uh, and they also let us know, you know, where the line is. Um, and, and uh, we need, we need that. And when we censor people who do that, we, we do ourselves a disservice. Well, you're right, David, but beyond that, it's not just about going out into the world and reporting. It's also going deep within yourself and reporting. Yeah. And if you go deep enough within yourself, you're not going to see all pretty things. You're not going to see all nice things. And I don't see why that it can't be a subject for, for discourse. You know, yeah. uh, I think it was Virgil who once said, uh, nothing which is uh, human is alien to me. And I feel the same way. You have to understand the context of it. If you're an audience member, it's not, we're not, we're, you know, comedians are great diagnosticians, but we're not necessarily um, great healers. Um, so we can tell you what's wrong with the world. Oh, we're really good at that, but we're yeah. not so good at telling you what's right with the world. So we're not here to, you know, make the world a better place or to suggest ideas where you could be a better person. 
but we're here to tell you what really is. Then you take that and you do what you want with it. You figure out how you want to handle that information. Carlin yeah. was such a genius at this. He, he was he was the real genius at this because you'd go and you'd think, oh, I'm going to go see George Carlin. He's a big liberal. And in real life, that's who he is. But when he gets on stage, he talks about how, how disgusting humanity is. Yeah. And um, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough sell now. Um, you know, that's a really tough sell. Can I sum something up Yeah. with this woke comedy? I would do anything to raise money for Black Lives Matter. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that I can't make a joke about it. Well, for most people, it's one or the other. But I don't see why they're mutually, those things are mutually exclusive. There was a, a revolutionary in the 1920s, a woman, and I can't remember her name, uh, but she said, don't tell me about your revolution unless I can dance at it. Mm -hmm. and, I, that's, and that's how I feel, you know? Um, you, I, I, I don't see anything mutually exclusive about supporting a good cause and still making fun of it. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, years ago, I got involved in a documentary. A friend of mine who's a producer who's been a guest on the podcast named Maureen Riley was involved in producing a uh, documentary about the Nubian night. Yes. You guys have done forever. And so she called me up and she said, we've got so much material for this, this documentary on this Nubian night, legendary night for comics of color. And she asked me, she goes, just go through all this material and tell me what you love and help me get the material sort of into a, a manageable amount of stuff that we can fit into this thing. And it was, was so much fun to go through all that material. And yeah. you were way ahead of the curve on that. Tell me about that. All right. Well, first, let me say that when we started Yuck Yucks back in 1976, um, all, all the that the all the comics were from different ethnic groups that you didn't find that at anywhere else. You didn't find that at Second City for sure. It was Lily White, but there was a, a Sri Lankan comic, there was a Jewish comic, there was a um, uh, a Greek comic, uh, there were a couple of Italian comics, uh, there was an Asian comic. We didn't even think of anything of that. The word multicultural hadn't even been invented yet. And because you didn't have to go to theater school to be on, on a yuck yuck stage, we took people off the street who simply said, I'm funny, watch me. And if they were, we'd bring them back. And if they weren't, they didn't. So yuck yucks was always the place that represented that new Toronto, uh, the Toronto that uh, was um, multicultural. And then that show, that Kenny's show started because I, I was looking at people on an amateur night and I passed on this girl a number of times and she was black. And she said to me, you know, Mark, with all due respect, how do you think as a white guy, you can judge my comedy? And I thought about that for a bit. And I said, well, yeah, maybe you should have your own, maybe we should do like your own show. And she started the show but I said, you got to have Kenny Robinson uh, as part of it because he knows more than anybody. And then she kind of disappeared and it became completely Kenny's show within like a couple of months. Yeah. And it's been a huge, huge, huge success. But our roots in multiculturalism go precede that. One, one guy that I, I think about when, when I think about comedians who've really opened the door to new audiences is Russell Peters. Yeah. It seems like when he hit the scene, he, he really seemed to open up to all kinds of audience. All kinds of comedians too. You know, after Russell's success, um, we were inundated with 
uh, people from South Asia. So yeah. who wanted to be who wanted to be comics? He he kicked open the door for an awful lot of other people like him, which was exciting. But here's something interesting. You, I think you'll find interesting. I was trying to help Russell um, get uh, some kind of American exposure, and he had a he had a, a gig just for laughs. So I went to a number of um, you know, major uh, agencies and said, you got to see this guy. I was right about other people. I think I'm right about him. Um, and they went to see him and I said, okay, what'd you think? They said, well, yeah, he's funny, but what is he? He's not black. He's not white. And they could, he's not Mexican. He's not Hispanic. And they, because they couldn't pigeonhole him, they all passed on him. Yeah. Well, of course, I mean, you know, you know, who had the last laugh there, but um but that, that's how America saw it. Canada was more open to the fact that he was from a culture that wasn't one of the, you know, big three. Mm -hmm. Did Russell's career really kind of blew up because of stuff that was posted on YouTube, right? That's right. People from all over the world seeing this guy, a brown comic, do his thing and blow up. That, that pulled so many new people into the clubs, right? Um, it did. Although, you know, at that point he was starting to work all over the world because um, they'd never, they'd never seen stand-up comedy in Jakarta. Yeah. So it was something completely new for them. Yeah. And this was, you know, the genius of, of Russell Peters realizing you don't have to, there's a lot more people outside North America than there are in North America. Yeah. And, you know, Jakarta and uh, Malaysia and all these places that you would never think of. Yeah. If you were a stand-up comic, we're open to Russell that we're not open to anybody else. Yeah. So he's one of those those people that that came into the yuck yuck fold that uh, you know you you helped along the way. Who who were the other people that you're really proud that you helped mentor or uh, create a platform for? Right from the beginning, uh, Howie Mandel and Jim Carrey were our big stars. Yeah. And both, of course, have gone on to superstardom. And they went pretty fast. I mean, Mandel showed up and uh, showed up in 78. Uh, Jim Carrey showed up in 78. By 81, Carrey was a star. And by 82, Mandel was a star. So that was all very fast. Um, but then I'm also proud of Norm MacDonald, yeah. um, who I think is an amazing comic, an amazing writer. Um, I never had an interaction with... Uh, uh, Seth Rogen, because he was out in Vancouver. Uh, so I, he kind of went through yuck yucks and I never actually even met him because uh, he moved away into to the States really fast. But I guess we could take some credit for him too. Um, there's Jeremy Hotz, there's yeah. uh, Harlan Williams, uh, both of uh, there's John Doerr. And although those people aren't superstars, they're definitely way up there in the, uh, in the comedy firmament. I was telling you this before I started at Auto EU in 89 and back in the day, Yuck Yucks used to do a uh, student night at, at clubs. And um, I think it was $4. I don't know if it was a Tuesday or Thursday or wh whatever it was, but I remember going to see two shows that I will never forget. One was uh, I saw Norm Macdonald when he first started and, and Harlan Williams. And those two guys just blew my mind. And, and I yeah, couldn't believe that we got to see them at Ottawa U at the Equinox Bar, which isn't there anymore. Unfortunately, I, I looked it up the other day. And that was such an amazing experience. And wow, what a treat. So that was such an amazing thing that you, you were doing. Well, you know who else I should put on that list, though, is Mike McDonald. You yeah, Mike McDonald. Mike? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, most people, most Canadian comics, even Mandel and Carrie will tell you that Mike McDonald is the best stand-up comic that this country has ever produced. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a guy, this guy could do three hours and then come back the next night and do a completely different three hours. 
he was just a genius. And unfortunately, a whole bunch of things happened that prevented him from becoming, you know, a big superstar. Mm -hmm. But anybody who ever saw him realized just how how amazing he was. Yeah, I remember about amazing. I bought a book uh, probably 20 years ago plus. Andrew Clark, Stand and Deliver. Remember reading his book, and he talked a lot about Mike McDonald. I mean, it's very sad. You know, Mike died about uh, four, I think, four years ago. Yeah. Um, very sad. And he had been very sick sad. for a long time, and uh, they, they, there were a lot of uh, campaigns mounted to help him with his treatments and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it was very sad. A lot of the folks that I know who've been doing stand-up for a long time always talk about how he was supposed to be the guy. But. He was the legend, and he deserved to be a legend. Unfortunately, he didn't look televisable. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a waxy face, and he looked um, old, even though he wasn't old. Mm-hmm. Um, he had uh, a lot of drug problems, and then he became very religious. All of these things get in the way. Yeah. Um, so it's just too bad that it didn't take off for him, because he was the guy. Yeah. One of the other guys I remember seeing in clubs in the early days, which he really <laughs> was fun to watch, was Derek Edwards. Derek was great. Derek was so precise in his use of language. Mm. Um, you know, there was never a, a word out of place in any of his routines. Derek also never became famous because he never wanted to go to the States. And you can only become so well known in this country. And um, I don't know. I haven't heard from Derek in a long time. I don't know if he's retired or semi-retired or or what, but he doesn't do a lot. Two other people that I'll mention too, and one of them I came across while I was doing some research on you was uh, you were doing an interview and interviewer asked you, who's a comedian we should look out for? And you suggested that audiences should look out for Aaron Berg. And and I was like, I know Aaron Berg. Before he was a comedian, I used to study at Second City, and he was one of the guys that I was knocking around with over at Second City in in their program. And then he got into stand-up comedy, and he took off really quickly. Well, it wasn't that quick. But, you know, what he had done was he he did a show. he, He actually had a show that was sort of like a one-man show. And then we would do excerpts of it on whatever night he was on the show, show at uh, Yuck Yuck. So he would do, you know, a 10-minute piece. But the whole show was designed as an off-Broadway show. And I produced it for him off-Broadway twice. Mm-hmm. It did quite well. He moved to New York. And I expected him to just blow up big. But it's been, he's been getting famous one, one person, one fan at a time. But if you see what he does now, which is almost all crowd work, it's brilliant, brilliant stuff. You can hear him um, often on a show called The David Feldman Show, mm-hmm. which is a podcast out of New York, which is on Mondays uh, between like 6 and midnight. Um, go on and you'll you'll be able to hear what he does. It's brilliant stuff. I watched one of his bits that he had done. I don't know how long ago it was. It was at Gotham, and and the funny thing about him was that while I still kind of knew him before he took off for New York and stuff, he got big in a bodybuilding, and he was in all of that, and that was a big part of his act. And I and I remember thinking, I, I don't know if that's going to work because people don't really connect bodybuilders with comedians. I remember when Joe Piscopo started working, dude. That's right. Bodybuilding, it was like I don't know if that I don't know if people connect, but he made it work. Like uh, you know, he Aaron made, made it work. work. And, um, you know, Joe Rogan is a bit of a bodybuilder. Oh, big time. So, you know, so it's not that unusual. It would have been unusual <laughs> the days of the Ed Sullivan show when, yeah. you know, these sort of warty, warty middle-aged guys would sort of walk out half drunk onto the uh, front of the microphone. But things have changed now. There's a, there's a kind of macho quality to certain male comedians that did not exist previously. 
Well, even, but even when Aaron was doing it in the early days, that was not a thing that nobody else was doing it. So he was no, nope, nobody else was doing. I, he was unique, 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 very unique. Still is. Yeah. Another uh, individual that was part of my growing up when I was going to Algonquin College and uh, I studied at Ottawa U and then after I graduated, I figured I wanted to, wasn't ready to jump into the workforce. I wanted to study a bit more and learn some more stuff. So I went and I studied broadcasting at Algonquin College in Ottawa. And uh, one of my peers was Tom Green and uh, he he developed the Tom Green show. At the time he, had, he was a rapper. He had actually been nominated for a um, Juno award as uh, as a rapper. And uh, so he, he all of a sudden he was in our class and we, we knew who he was from that, from the rap world. But he was obviously very interested in comedy. He'd done some radio and he launched the Tom Green show while we were studying at Algonquin College and the kids who were in my class were the crew and they shot that at Rogers 22 back in the day and as they say the rest is history and, yeah. and he, he he's done a lot of different things but at one point he decided he wanted to do stand-up and I was watching um, uh, a piece uh, of a video about uh, COVID-19 and everything that was going on with that and, and and there was a lot of different interviews and they interviewed Tom Green and they were talking about how you were a big part of him becoming a stand-up comic. He had done it a bit before uh, when he was a younger person, but then he got into TV and then he's obviously come back to it. And now he, that's a big part of his life now in non-COVID times. He travels the world and he does stand-up. What, what are your memories of seeing him early on? Well, Tom Green, is a, he's a cat. He's got more lives than anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll, he'll rap, that, that'll sort of die out for a bit so he'll become a stand-up for a while then he'll do a movie um then he'll do a blog he'll do it he'll do it from his basement he doesn't care he's just really good at keeping uh, in touch with his public and that's fantastic what people don't realize about tom because they know him from you know that crazy show mostly um is is that he's a good stand-up comic um he's a very good stand-up comic we've booked him as a headliner many many times i had him host um our uh, new year's show at massey hall which is a not an easy gig to do because you're in front of 2800 people and it's new year's eve and they expect a lot but uh, he did it great he was fantastic yeah the other thing about tom that's interesting is he's always been way ahead of the curve on technology yes that's right. He was doing almost like, you know, the late night comedy shows out of his place in the Hollywood Hills 20 years ago. Yeah. Just about, you yeah. know, he was doing that before anybody else was doing it. It's amazing. No, Tom, Tom is a real innovator. And, you know, you could say that Tom invented reality comedy long before Jackass. There was Tom Green. Well, yeah, I would not even say reality comedy, but reality TV. And one, I remember one of the banes of my existence was when I got to Toronto I was pitching all these different comedy shows and I'd go and talk to people at the comedy channel and they'd say, this is too big. You know, there's too many characters. This is too expensive. We want what Tom Green offers, you know, and it was like, well, you know, okay, all right, let me reset. But all the old, you know, sort of norms about what a comedy show could be went out the door. And that was both, I was like impressed by that, but it was also very frustrating because, you know, comedy got very cheap. And in many ways still is. Yeah, but that's a whole different story. Tell me a bit about how you got involved with uh, working with Humber College in their comedy program. Well, um, there was a, uh, the dean at the time, this was 15 years ago, Joe Curtis, was a real visionary and came to me and said, you know, and I'd never met him before. He just called me out of the blue and said, can we have, can we have a coffee? And he said, you know, we have this jazz program at Humber and it's really successful. Is there any way we could do for comedy what we've done for jazz? create an actual uh, program. 
I said, well, you know, I guess the issue is, can you teach people to be funny? And a lot of people will think, no, you can't. So why don't we rephrase that and ask ourselves the question, can you teach people to be funnier? Yeah. So whatever they're coming into the program with, whatever level of natural ability, we can amplify that. If you're not funny at all, you're probably not going to graduate with high marks. But if you're funny, we can make you funnier. I mean, and we had the best people that we hired at the time. We had Joe Flaherty from SCTV uh, was a teacher and Ann Beats, who recently died, unfortunately. We have Robin Duke from Saturday Night Live. We had Larry Horowitz. Um, and Horowitz is the dean of Canadian stand-up. I mean, this guy is the technician and dates back all the way to, you know, the, to Harborfront with me. It's in its 20th year and it's, uh, it's doing great. I mean, COVID has kind of gotten in the way because the students can't interact with each other. They have to do it online. Can you imagine doing improv online? But that's going to change. What, what, are, what are the first couple pieces of advice that you give to new comedy students? Well, the most important thing is originality. One of the problems with young comics is that they all live a similar life. They all sit in front of the TV. They all eat the same food. And so there's a certain sameness to it all. Mm -hmm. um, they have to break out of that sameness and find things about themselves that are unlike anybody else. And that's the first key to comedy. The second thing they have to do is realize that all comedy is based on character. You know, you think of somebody like Jack Benny, who could say so much just by putting his hand on his cheek and resting it on his elbow. And it spoke volumes. So character is the most important thing. And I always ask them, are you a sad clown? Are you a happy clown? Are you an angry clown? What kind of clown are you? And they have to find that out. And that sometimes can take a decade. And then they have to learn how to play to the back of the room because so often young comics are learning their craft in 20 seat bars. And that's just not reality of, of the performance situation. You need a certain number of people in a room to create uh, the number of people that will create that sort of performance space. I would say 150 people is the right number. Could be 200. Can't be much less. Can't be too much more either because then that's, that's a concert and you're not learning anything in a concert mm -hmm. because you're too busy just corralling the room. Yeah. So those are the kinds of things that I, I tell them. I also watch them individually and, you know, work and I'll go, okay, you're too slow. You got you to gotta speed it up. You got to speed it up. Then the next person will show up and she'll show me her work and I'll go, no, no you got to slow it down. You got to slow it down. So you have to taper every single uh, critique to the person's own individual work. There are no real rules because if there were rules, Stephen Wright would never have become a star. Yeah. And is that the same advice you'd give to anybody who showed up for amateur night at Yuck X? Well, I generally don't give advice to people who show up at Amateur Night because they don't deserve adv advice yet. Mm -hmm. You, the first, the first 500 times don't even count. You're yeah. just learning who you are on stage. Um, it's later on in the process where I might get involved because for somebody to go up once and for me to give them some advice, it's meaningless. Mm -hmm. Just meaningless. They have to do it a lot. Then I'll give them advice. And they have to find their own voice first. Yeah, or, yeah. or at least think they found their own voice. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Stephen Wright and he reminds me a little bit of uh, my, my favorite comment uh, comic and uh, a guy that I, I got to know a little bit uh, years ago because I pitched him on a, on a, on, a, on an idea for a show. And I, I saw him for the first time at uh, 
your uptown club up at Young and Egg. Let me guess. Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. Yeah. I he's adored great. Mitch Hedberg. I think he, uh, so did I. he was just a beautiful human being and a, just an amazing comic. Well, I like those surreal guys. I love Mitch Hedberg. I love Emo Phillips, who I'm yeah. very good friends with. In fact, Mitch Hedberg um, delivered the speech at my wedding. Uh, oh, really? um, I love Gilbert Gottfried. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I love these kinds of I love these kinds of acts. Yeah, they're not based in reality. They don't need to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I, uh, I just think about Mitch all the time, and 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 over the years I've heard his voice and so many other young comics, and I think some of them don't even know who he was, but it's just he just reverberated to that extent that he's just he's just he's just part of the the the, the, the comic stratosphere now. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's different there's different genres here. We're talking about subgenres, and the surrealists are one. Um, there's the political. Um, there's the political comics as well. And I think of them as being Chris Rock and uh, Dave Chappelle. And, um, you know, they're telling you what to think. Yeah. They're telling you what to think. And that's fine too. I like those guys too. And all the late night hosts, they have a bit of it. Right. And then there's the observational guys like Mm -hmm. Seinfeld. And unfortunately a lot of bad Seinfeld imitators. Yeah. But you know, who's good. Tom Papa who Seinfeld likes. Yeah. Um, Tom, Tom Papa's great. I love Tom Papa. And it's not accidental that I like him because he's got these new glasses that he wears that makes him look just like Jack Benny, who's <laughs> one of my, you know, my, one of my heroes for sure. <laughs> but um, th- those are three sub sort of sub genres of, of comedy. And then there's also the autobiographical comics. Um, this is something I'm not as interested in, but the millennials love this. The comics, they show up and they just tell you what they did that day. It's all kind of miniaturists and um, it's got no stagecraft, particularly. You feel like you're in your living room or your rec room and these people are just telling you what's going on and they're kind of funny. Uh, there aren't big punchlines. There aren't big setups. This was interesting to me. I still like stagecraft. John Mulaney. Yeah, I love John Mulaney. John Mulaney's great. One, one of the, yeah, one of the, that's one of the funnest, most brilliant bits I've heard in a while because it's all about Trump and he never mentions his name once is there's a horse in the hospital. And I've listened to that bit so many times and it's just brilliant. Yeah. He's great. John Mulaney is definitely great. Well, talking about great comics, talk to me about two or three comics that you think that the public should be watching out for when, when things open up, Who's the next big thing? I don't know. I saw I saw a clip from Esther Koo uh, the other day, and I thought she was fantastic. Um, she's out of the States. She's probably out of Los Angeles. Um, and she does this sort of take off on what you think an Asian comic should be. Um, and I thought she was very postmodern, and I liked her very much. I also hope that Nikki Payne gets back into the business because oh, I always Nikki thought Payne. that. I remember seeing her. She's great. You know, she's out. studying um, cultural studies in... Uh, at Dalhousie. Yeah. So I'm hoping when she's finished that, she'll want, she'll be itching to get back on stage for sure. I mentioned Tom Papa, who I'm late to the party on, but uh, I, I now think he's terrific. Mulaney is a great choice. I think Mulaney's going to be very, very big for a very long time. Yeah. 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 Watch his second Netflix special. It's special. It's truly yeah. special. 
Uh, one thing I was going to mention earlier, these have been difficult times for business owners, entrepreneurs. Uh, I was talking to you the other day and telling you that uh, one one of the first guests I had on when I started this podcast last year was a friend of mine that I met down here in Costa Rica. Her name is Barbara Holiday. She owns uh, Flappers Comedy Club in Los Angeles. And uh, we we had a chat and she was, it was a, the beginning of the pandemic. She was stressed out. She was worried about losing her business. And, uh, you know, I don't say this very often, but God bless her, because I'm not really a religious person, but God bless her. She was so worried about, about her people. Uh, and uh, they, were, they, were, they were doing all kinds of fundraisers, trying to figure out how they could keep the club alive. And also some of their comics who were people who were at risk, some of the, you know, people who might fall through the cracks who didn't have second incomes. And like a lot of comics don't, you know, I think a lot of comics work in other parts of food and beverage industry often, and those things are all gone. And, and you, you were, uh, you guys were doing the same sort of thing. You were trying to figure out how to do shows at, in parks and how to do shows online. T- talk to me a bit about the stuff the Yuck has been doing and, and comedians have been doing to try to keep, the art alive and trying to keep people, uh, you know, fed. Well, remember, I don't just have a club to worry about. I have a whole, you know, vertically integrated company. Um, at, at, at our peak, we have 500 employees, mm-hmm. you know, coast to coast. If you include all those, all the serving staff and, and everybody, um, we're not responsible for each individual franchise. The franchise is responsible. And of course our fear is that the franchises will just go, go under. Yeah. We're very lucky that a lot of those franchises are actually part of other businesses so that they've got enough uh, revenue coming in to be able to support it. I'll give you an example. We're in a number of casinos. The casinos are not going to go under. They're yeah. just, they've got deep pockets and they'll wait it out. And when they're ready to come back, um, then they'll open up their yuck yucks. That's an important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also transitioned and pivoted a bit. We're doing a lot of cyber comedy. Um, I don't mean Zoom shows, although we're going to try a big one in a couple of weeks, um, a cross-country one. But I'm talking about uh, mostly corporates, um, so what we're calling cyber comedy, and we're selling an enormous amount, number of shows to uh, businesses where they no longer have their, their employees working in, a, in an office. They're all working at home. They all feel cut off from each other, and everybody's depressed. And what, a better, what better way than to say, okay, it's this time, on this day, you're going to watch a Yuck Yuck show, and we bring them a Yuck Yuck show that's tapered specifically for their business. Um, we've been doing really well with those. The only problem is, um, you know, not everybody can do a corporate. Um, this is be- also before COVID. You have to have a certain ballast to do a corporate. You have to be a certain age to do a corporate and you can't talk about certain subjects. You can't talk about sex. You can't talk about race. You can't do bathroom humor. Um, No matter how funny those things are, you can't do them. So it restricts the number of people, the kind of people we can book into these shows. Um, And we wish we didn't have to, but there's, there's no, there's no choice. We, to do that, we have to do that. We've also done experimented with, you know, drive-in shows. Um, I went to one of the drive-in shows and uh, the sound is great. The, uh, the customers and the cars, they tune into whatever frequency it is. They hear it beautifully. They, um, the visual is blown up big on a, on a huge screen. That's all great. But what they can't do is they can't have the comics hear the reaction. Yeah. And it's just miserable because what happens is 
when somebody likes a joke, they're sitting in their car, they honk their horn and they flash their lights. Yeah. So it's like being in cars too. It's yeah. like you're in a Disney movie. It's, yeah. it's just bizarre. We're trying something this year. We're actually going to put microphones inside the cars. You did some park shows. How did those work? Park out? shows are fine. Yeah. Park shows are fine. Outdoor, outdoor show, outdoor comedy is just fine. There's no problem with it as long as you've got the correct amount of amplification and lighting and it starts later after the sun has already gone down. There's nothing more depressing than watching comics in the middle of the day. Oh, <laughs> I know. Right. It's like, I remember going to see alternative rock shows or, you know, seeing these goth bands or whatever. And the band that had to go on before, you know, sundown, a horrible place to be no. in their roster. Com- comics are, va- comics are vampires. Yeah. They have to be seen at night. Yeah. The other thing that I'd seen was that there was a, a documentary that was, uh, you know, about the whole COVID experience. Uh, and uh, one of the comments, uh, the, com- the comedians was saying that, uh, you know, as part of the regulations, that there was a, a plexiglass screen in front of the comedian. And, uh, you know, the way the lights are set up, the light would bounce or whatever. You couldn't see the, 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 the people in the first few rows or you couldn't see anybody. And you, you just don't get to gauge how people are reacting to your comedy. And it makes it so much much different not just that um you have to spread the the you're only allowed a certain number of people in the room a fraction of the people in the room and you have to spread them out now you know that what makes comedy exciting is everybody's jammed into a place uh where they're rubbing shoulders with people Uh, the tighter that you fit them in the better it is that's one of the reasons those new york clubs are so great spaces at such a premium that um they literally have people sitting on each other's laps yeah. Um, and it, that's exciting. You want it to, you want it to sweat. You, you want it to be sweaty. Well, with COVID rules, if we are open, we can't do anything like that. We have to be far, everybody has to be far from each other. Um, and they're very grateful. The audience is extremely grateful that they're able to see a show because they probably haven't seen a show in a, of any kind in a long time. But we know, the comics know, the owners know, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. There's not supposed to be a moat between the stage and the audience. This audience is supposed to be right up against the comic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully it won't be that long until that's the case. I think. Uh, um, fully. When will we be fully back where we can actually jam people in? Yeah. That's a year away. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think that's about, a year away, yeah. but how long before we can open and, you know, observe certain all the protocols, that's maybe only three months away. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to that day. There's two things I miss. It's I miss, I miss seeing comedy. I miss seeing improv and I, and well, and three things and live music. I just feel slightly less human without being able to uh, enjoy that with a, with a group. Yeah. Listen, me too. My life is my work. I know that. And I've always known that. And um, without my work, I'm, I'm just, you know, a shadow of who I really am. I don't get to express myself in the way that I want to express myself. It's important to me. So I could hardly wait till we're back. And uh, I know I speak for everybody. Nobody is saying, yeah, it's been a nice holiday. Nobody (laughs) is saying that. Oh, uh, sigh. (laughs) I'll ask you one last question too. And and, uh, and that is, uh, and this is a whole other topic, but uh, you've got so many things that you've got, you, you know, you've got your fingers in so many different pies. Uh, you've also been a prolific film critic. Why did you decide, I, I want to do that too? What, what do you love about that part of your portfolio? 
Well, first of all, I always loved film. And in fact, I probably loved film before I loved comedy. Even when I was a teenager, I was going to every movie possible. I was almost the completest. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care what it is. I just like sitting in the dark with strangers. I just like the process of being in the movies. Um, so uh, I can't, I, I don't have access to make movies. You need millions and millions of dollars for that, but you can write about them. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, uh, I think that the column I had with Richard Krauss in, um, in Metro for those three years, I think those were really good columns. It was a real Siskel and Ebert, but I concentrated on trying to make it funny. Yeah. And then there was a change of management and they went with a more conventional, you know, review the movie. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I haven't been able to replace that gig yet, but I'm always looking. Yeah. Well, I, 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 uh, I mentioned to you the other day, I, I briefly met you once before we were introduced uh, by my friend Tom Ernst, who was uh, a recent guest on on the podcast, and who's an old friend of mine. Great guy, and, uh, and uh, yeah, he's a wonderful person. We and uh, so I was at a theater in Toronto, and it was for the Toronto premiere of a film called Savages. And I hadn't seen Tom in a long time, and I called out to him, and it was wonderful to see him. I was introduced to uh, yourself and uh, and Richard, and we sat and watched the movie with you guys. And um, so that was the one time I'd met you before uh but it was a real pleasure uh being able to sit down with you today and 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 chat with you about comedy and your your uh amazing career and uh and and life in the arts so uh i thank you so much for your time and uh like i said i can't wait to get back into one of your clubs be it uh if i'm back in ottawa or at uh your your club in the entertainment district in in toronto which is a it's such a beautiful uh beautiful room to see comedy to hear comedy Mm -hmm. i'm looking forward to it and so uh and I can't wait to go back to Toronto too, because I'm, as you know, I'm here in Costa Rica. I might switch off with you. Okay, <laughs> come down yeah. here for a bit. Is that uh, you're saying? I just, yeah, want to come down to Costa Rica. It doesn't sound so bad. Yeah, uh, you know, it is beautiful here and stuff. But I, I'm just, uh, I'm homesick, and I miss all that uh, Toronto offers. But as as we were chatting earlier before we started the official part of our conversation, Toronto isn't offering what we uh, know is Toronto at this at this moment. We'll have to wait for it to come back. No, yeah. not yet. Yeah. All right, Mark, thank you so much for your time. It was lovely to talk to you, and I really appreciate you uh, sitting down and uh, sharing your story with me. Thank you, David. Be well. There you have it, my conversation with Mark Breslin. Thank you very much to Mark for sharing his cool story. If you would like to support the podcast, you can do so by making a small monthly pledge by visiting patreon.com slash cool story with David J. McNeil. Also, thanks again to Mr. Jerry Stamp, who wrote and performed the Cool Story theme song and all other jingles and stings that appear on the show. Do yourselves a favor and look for Jerry's music wherever you stream. And if you like what you hear, visit iTunes and support Jerry by buying an album or two. And finally, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, Pura Vida. Everybody's had some adventures Everybody's had a few close calls Everybody's got a story What's yours?